Welcome to the Castaways. I'm Sarah. And I'm Kelsey. And welcome back to the pod. I do have to say right out of the gate that last week was just really kind of bizarre. Mm -hmm. We were both so busy. And then I think it was what, like less than six hours before we were set to record our entire script for the episode just disappeared yeah we have no clue what happened (laughs) and two other scripts are also missing they're not in the trash yeah thankfully those were for episodes that we already recorded but it's still weird i like to cross-reference our episode documents sometimes and i feel like the more episodes we do we're gonna want to do that you know yeah just to make sure we didn't cover the same thing or person like twice in detail, you know, so that's annoying. But while on the subject of missing things, today we decided to cover psychic mediums helping in all kinds of cases, but missing people is really what brought us to this topic for this week. But I mean, I've always wanted to do that. I know, me too. So cool. I know. <laughs> but getting back to what you said about last week it was crazy crazy (laughs) how crazy was it (laughs) crazy (laughs) obby was just saying that he feels like he hasn't really spent time at home Mm. in a while he was in texas then it was his birthday so like we went out had a few drinks we saw a show then i took him to the nicest restaurant in the region and then we got a couple's massage yesterday to just polish off his <laughs> birthday celebrations with a little care for myself too of course mm-hmm. and it was fantastic then he ended up buying six massages <laughs> for him and i so three for each so that's just great it was the libra full moon too so that was just like a really really on point way to spend that yeah. evening you know yeah that sounds so nice Mm -hmm. i spent the night of the full moon journaling because i was just being hit with realization after realization of different triggers and old things that i had to release Mm -hmm. and cleanse my energy of Mm -hmm. so we had vastly different full moon nights Mm -hmm. but that's okay because as we all know spiritual growth never yeah (laughs) i felt like i had like an energy cleanse too yeah so that was just awesome yeah it was very intense yeah and then of course the james webb telescope captured a new image of cassiopeia a and so that made me cry but what's funny is spoiler alert i was also thinking of taking us to get massages as one of your birthday presents (laughs) but if you already have three then maybe i'll just tweak the plans a little bit i do have a backup plan though i just have to see if the timing will work Mm. out or if you'd even want to go because it's on a sunday night at 7 30 and those monday mornings hit hard they do but uh we were just geeking out about the event that is my backup plan Mm. a few weeks ago ah okay (laughs) so i think you would enjoy it Mm -hmm. but here's a question for you to start off today's topic Mm -hmm. if a loved one of yours was to go missing or worse become a crime victim and police hit a dead end 
would it occur to you to look to a psychic for help? Dun 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 But me, like personally, that would probably be my second stop. <laughs> yeah. But maybe not for most people. <laughs> Same. <laughs> but I agree. For the majority out there, I don't think that that would be their second or third or probably even fourth thought. Mm-hmm. However, there are hundreds of active medical intuitives throughout the world that val. <laughs> Volunteer there, <laughs> volunteer. <laughs> you know those old medical intuitives. They just volunteer their time. Was it Offie that went to Texas, or you? <laughs> okay. <clears throat> There are hundreds of active medical intuitives throughout the world that volunteer their time and efforts to help solve crimes. So in this episode, we're going to look at a few of the most famous psychic detectives, one of whom is still actively working in America today, and psychics who have helped with some very well-known cases. To begin our topic, we just wanna lay out exactly what a psychic medium is. So from mysticsense.com, and all of our sources, as always, will be listed in the show notes, the terms psychic and medium are regularly used interchangeably and are often misunderstood to mean the exact same thing. Simply put, psychic is a generalized term referring to anyone who possesses the ability to decipher and relay information inexplicable by natural law as we know it. Mediums specialize in connecting with spirits of the deceased. While these terms are definitely similar in nature, they do bear subtle differences that are crucial in deciding when and why to involve a particular technique for one's own personal matters. In Greek, the term psyche, spelled P-S-Y-C-H-E, refers to all aspects of conscious personality. Anything from our sense of spirit, our souls, to the presence of ghosts really are classified as facets of the human psyche. It is ultimately a general term to describe the parts of ourselves that aren't physically tangible, yet they really make us who we are. With this in mind, a psychic is said to possess the capability to connect with another person's soul. The key discerning factor, which discriminates a psychic from other spiritual practitioners, is the fact that these souls are of the living and not of those who have passed over. Through tapping into an individual's soul, psychics are able to acquire information about this person that has not necessarily been volunteered. This personal information can vary from experiences in the past, issues consuming the present, or events predicted to occur in the future. While specific to each psychic, it is commonly said that psychics engage with people's auras and energy fields as a means to tap into the soul. In addition, psychics are considered highly sensitive and in tune with the people (laughs) in tune (laughs) with the people around them. A heightened sense of intuition is integral to a psychic's practice and goes far beyond the average person's hunches or inklings that they might have about something or someone. 
Yeah. Personally, my intuition is always a thought or an image that Mm -hmm. I didn't actively think of. It just pops into my head like an internal knowing Mm -hmm. that's so heightened and obvious to me that there can't be any other reason as to why that just occurred other than my intuition. But if I'm feeling a bit uncomfortable or anxious or I know that I'm actively overthinking something, then that separates it. And I know that that's just my own anxiety. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like clairvoyance for the, the image. We'll get into that in a bit here too. And as a result of this heightened intuition, psychics also tend to provide excellent guidance to those who seek it by connecting with some of the deepest and most underlying components of a person's psyche. Resolutions to particularly troublesome concerns are able to be found. So think seer. In 1941, Dutchman Peter Herkos suffered a serious brain injury at the age of 30, after which he claims his psychic abilities began to emerge and he was dubbed the man with the x-ray mind. That's That's like so cool. (laughs) Yeah. What's the... uh... X-Men. That's like some X-Men stuff No, right it there, is. You know? His work as a psychic included providing clues towards the infamous Manson murders and the case of the Boston Strangler. His gift also extended into the world of entertainment, and he was known to perform his psychic feats for live audiences, picking up on personal information only the audience member themselves could have known. I would love to get to that point. Mm-hmm. How cool. And then, of course, we have the term medium. In a psychic context, a medium is a person who has the ability to receive and relay messages from the spirit world in particular. By doing so, mediums are essentially the doorway that connects the physicality of Earth with the spirituality of the next life. While mediums aren't typically able to influence spirits themselves, their main purpose is to convey vital information and heartfelt messages from deceased loved ones to the ones that they've left behind in this current realm. Mediums are usually a great comfort to those who seek their assistance and therefore have taken a prominent stance in the psychic world. For most, the thought of being able to have one last conversation with a departed loved one is an unfathomable concept, so their powerful gift has made them the go-to choice for many people seeking psychic guidance. As discussed prior, a medium is utilizing the practice of clairvoyance when receiving messages from spirit. They may be able to hear, see, feel, or even smell the presence of a spirit, but the act of specifically contacting the deceased is what turns a psychic or a clairvoyant into a medium. Mm-hmm. Teresa Caputo is arguably one of the most famous mediums in the Western world after starring in hit reality TV show Long Island Medium. She claims to have been able to sense spirit as a child, but at the time, she didn't make the connection that she was able to receive and deliver messages from them also. While also technically a clairvoyant, as she uses her senses to obtain these messages, she is classed as a medium for her unique gift of contacting the dead. I always liked her show. Mm -hmm. I know a ton of people criticize her or they don't believe her, but... 
I always thought she was fun. She is, and she's right. also super impressive. I agree. I really liked watching her show. Me too. You know? She's sassy. Yeah. <laughs> and while still on the conversation of the difference between psychics and mediums, let's discuss clairvoyance. There are many different clairs, but clairvoyance seems to be pretty common in like the solving of cases. <laughs> Psychic sight, basically, is clairvoyance. In French, the word clairvoyant translates as clear seeing. The practice of clairvoyance is often used by psychics and mediums as it describes the work of the mind's eye, which conjures intensely vivid images. Not to be mistaken for one's imagination, these images can often appear salient enough to reach out and grasp. These images may be of certain individuals, particular places, or maybe significant events in a recipient's life. These images are then interpreted by the psychic or medium, and subsequently the message that needs communicating is done so. And there's no right or wrong for what an image can be interpreted as for a psychic medium. Every practitioner will have a different interpretation for an image that they are being presented. Like if I'm giving a reading to someone and I see a sunflower or a rabbit, that is a clear message to me from a specific paternal family member of theirs or a message from an ancestor because that's what it means to me but if Kelsey saw that image it would mean probably something else entirely to her as yeah. the interpreter spirit will give you images that you relate to whatever they are trying to convey to you to me Sometimes that I'm like in a meditation, it will look like, you know, when it's really bright outside and you close your eyes and you kind of have that like reddish pinkish negative yeah. view of what you saw. Yeah. It looks like that when I'm like in a meditation ah. is like kind of what like, but I could get like a lot of, de I'll know who someone is if I recognize them. Yeah. It's, it's cool. Yeah. yeah. It, it's cool. It's cool. It's cool. <laughs> I am always like I mean, I'll see things too, you know, but like yeah. <laughs> like a daydream kind of. Yeah. Sometimes too. Yeah, it's weird. It really depends yeah. on like what I'm doing. Yeah. How I'm setting myself up for this communication. Exactly. Mhm. Mm so despite the conjuring of images being the most common, variants of the practice similarly exist and are equally as important. For instance, the ability to pick up on auditory messages or clairaudience and the capacity to feel different physical sensations, referred to as clairsentience, are also manners of receiving information that fall under the wider umbrella of clairvoyancy. So again, there's clairaudience, psychic hearing, clairvoyance, psychic sight, clairsentience, psychic feeling, like emotions, you know, physical things, claircognizance, psychic knowing, there's clairgustance, psychic taste, and clairolfaction, psychic smell. That one always is something, well, a, a lot of them are like in my, my psychic tool belt. <laughs> Same. As my instructor would say. Yeah. <laughs> but Clairol Faction, I always really love that. Oh, here's some roses, you know, or this like perfume yes. or like a cigarette. 
you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know we've joked in the past about how Claire audience is exactly like that TikTok where the audio goes, <laughs> hey, hello, hi, hi. <laughs> give me back my hamster. hamster. <laughs> and it's just so accurate. Mm-hmm. I woke up the other day to a male voice saying, I really like clam chowder. <laughs> and I, just, I love that that was the message that he had to give to me. <laughs> really pressing matters here. Yeah. It's always the weirdest stuff, you know? Yeah, it is. I get a lot of, hello, or hi. Yeah. And really loud, like just before I'm about to fall asleep. Mm-hmm. And it's creepy, but it's also like, come on, man. Right. Like, I was just about to doze off, <laughs> which is obviously why it happened then. Right. But a famous clairvoyant, the Marquis de Pissigur, was an 18th century French aristocrat. Despite his unique gift being largely misunderstood in his day, and I'm sure it was, yeah, <laughs> he's recognized as one of the pre-scientific founders of hypnotism. His work primarily focused on telepathic communication with other individuals, of which messages would be received visually and acoustically. For many centuries prior, clairvoyants had no choice but to keep their practice hidden for fear of being judged as a witch. Only towards the end of the 18th century was the phenomenon of receiving non-tangible, visual, auditory, and sensory messages explored in wider science. So clairvoyance is a technique adopted by both physics, physics, (laughs) physics, can you imagine? Well, we're, we're heading there at some point. <laughs> Breaking boundaries today. Clairvoyance is a technique adopted by both psychics and mediums alike, but one can't be a medium or a clairvoyant without having psychic abilities. Moreover, a medium would need to possess clairvoyant abilities in order to connect with the dead, yet a clairvoyant is not necessarily always a medium. You know, <laughs> while it can be somewhat confusing to like really grasp these distinctions between them, we need a flow chart. It's true, or like a Venn diagram. Yeah, it's important to understand that although not all psychics and clairvoyants are able to contact spirits, many will eventually develop this gift over time, thus adopting the term medium when this occurs. Psychics, mediums, and clairvoyants all possess extra-worldly abilities, you know, (laughs) X-Men, that allow them to bridge the gap between the physical world and the realms of spirituality. People who have these gifts are unique in that they are our only earthly evidence of discovering planes of consciousness and the concept of life after death. By learning the subtle differences that exist between psychics, mediums, and clairvoyants, one can really start to make an informed decision regarding the ways in which they seek guidance. Each offers distinctive and unique insights that really can have profound effects on the course of one's life, like if they search for that guidance. Yeah, absolutely. And there's such a wide area in which anyone can use their abilities to. Mm-hmm. 
But today, we've decided to focus on a few psychic detectives who use their extrasensory perception to help solve crimes. So cool. I know. (laughs) I'd love to be able to help people that way. And I understand, like, skeptics and, like, you know. But my whole thing is, if you don't understand it, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Don't tell me it doesn't exist. Uh, Yep. It's oh, it's okay to not know and understand things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and that's all I'm going to say. I am that. not a skeptic, clearly. Yeah. Well, we wouldn't be doing this podcast <laughs> probably exactly. if we were. <laughs> Nancy Weber has had psychic abilities for as long as she can remember, though she never used the term psychic to describe herself until she became an RN at a psychiatric hospital in 1963. At just 19 years old, Nancy said that doctors would bring her patients so she could quickly diagnose them, being able to do so just by looking at the patient sitting across from her. Her success rate was so high that she became head nurse in less than 10 years and was even picked to lead a psychiatric research experiment at a hospital in the South Bronx. Nancy eventually left nursing to begin a private psychic practice of her own, and in 1979, she would start working as a consultant for law enforcement agencies as a psychic detective. This career has lasted for over 40 years, where she's been so successful that she's received an honorary Chief of Detectives badge and a Sheriff's Commendation for her work in helping to solve crimes and find missing children. Often regarded as one of the best cases of a psychic detective helping to solve a crime, Nancy was called in to help with the unsolved murders of Amy Hoffman and Deirdre O'Brien, which occurred in New Jersey between the weeks of November 23rd and December 5th, 1982. On November 23rd, 18-year-old Amy Hoffman left her part-time job at a local mall to head home. Unfortunately, she would never arrive. After several worried hours, Hoffman's mother went to the mall where she found Amy's car in the parking lot. The keys were in the ignition and her purse and sweater were in the front seat with no evidence of a struggle. Oh, God. I know. Amy would be found two days later floating face down in a concrete water tank at the Mendham Borough Reservoir. Hoffman had been stabbed several times with a knife. The FBI became involved in the investigation a week later when the case had stalled. That's when one detective, Captain Jim Moore, contacted Nancy Weber. Moore also brought in a second, non-psychic detective, Bill Hughes, to help lead the task force. After a few initial meetings, Moore and Hughes both agreed to let Nancy help with the case. Their first course of action was to go to the crime scene at the mall. Nancy directed them to the exact spot where Amy's car had been found. She said the area felt like it was alive with magnetic energy of trauma. Oof. Seeing the crime play out in her mind's eye, Nancy described the entire abduction to the officers in precise detail, which matched their notes exactly. Both Moore and Hughes were amazed as the details that Nancy described hadn't been released to the public. The next place they took Nancy to was the murder scene. As Nancy walked through the woods, she began to hear Amy's cries for help. Suddenly, arriving at the crime scene, Nancy felt a sharp pain. She realized that the killer had stabbed Amy. That's when Nancy gave the police the information she had picked up on, telling them, 
The man who did this, his first name is James, his last name is Polish, multiple syllables beginning with a K and ending in an ick sound. He drives a bluish-green Chevrolet. He came back to New Jersey after serving time in prison in Florida for murder. He used to live in this area. Morin Hughes took down the information Nancy provided, but still they were unable to locate the killer. He would unfortunately end up murdering a second woman, Deirdre O'Brien, two weeks later on December 5th. Like Hoffman, she had been abducted and repeatedly stabbed. She was rescued by a driver at a truck stop and briefly described her attacker to him, but she sadly passed a few moments later. Mm. As Nancy rode with Morin Hughes to Deirdre's crime scene, she got an image of books and a library. Deirdre had worked at a restaurant called The Library that looked like a real library on the inside. When Nancy got out of the car and walked around the scene, she saw a vision of the same turquoise Chevrolet pull to a stop where the driver got out and retrieved Deirdre from the trunk. He stabbed her in the abdomen, then threw her out of the car and drove away. Oh my god. Stabbed in like the stomach? I know. It's just, it's so... That's brutal. Yeah. Though she couldn't see a precise face, Nancy told detectives that the killer had dark brown hair that was thin in front and a bigger triangle-shaped nose. The killer, James Koedatik, a dark-haired 30-year-old man of Polish descent who lived nearby in Morristown, would be arrested for the crime six weeks later in the early morning hours of January 17, 1983. He had served 10 years in a Dade County, Florida prison for robbery and second-degree murder and had been released on August 18, 1982. Police found his sedan, a turquoise Chevrolet, parked at his home, and inside they found fibers that matched both Amy and Deirdre's clothes the night they were attacked. Mm Mm-hmm. Nancy's psychic information about Hoffman and O'Brien's killer turned out to be amazingly accurate in nearly every detail. Her credibility was dramatically bolstered by detectives Moore and Hughes, who publicly professed belief in her abilities. She needs a show. (laughs) Right? I know. (laughs) And this, of course, wasn't the only case that Nancy had helped to solve. And with abilities like that, I mean, come on. Right. In an interview with Nancy Grace (laughs) on the HLN network, Nancy discussed another crime case that she had been asked to help with. Peggy Goebel's sister, Elizabeth Cornish, would unfortunately be murdered in 1987, with police finding her body in her apartment the next day. Though Elizabeth's boyfriend was, of course, the top suspect, police had no evidence connecting anyone to the crime. Testing for DNA wasn't a technology available back then, so law enforcement hit a roadblock in trying to find the killer. Feeling like she had nowhere else to turn, one of Peggy's work clients gave her Nancy Weber's name. Peggy said that she was a bit hesitant to tell police that she'd called a psychic, but thankfully the police were already very well aware of who (laughs) Nancy Weber was. So cool. I know. (laughs) She worked with the same exact police officers years earlier, actually helping them with another unsolved case. While in a face-to-face meeting with Peggy, Nancy Weber asked her specifically not to say anything about the case. 
tapping in, as Nancy said, to the different energies that she was feeling, she said almost immediately that she felt horrible feelings and just immense grief. So she asked Peggy if there had been a recent loss within her family. Peggy said yes. Nancy then picked up on the fact that Elizabeth's boyfriend would be the top suspect, but that he wasn't actually guilty. Peggy confirmed that he was in fact the leading suspect. After agreeing to take on the case, the leading prosecutor asked Nancy to come to the crime scene herself. That's gotta be so charged to step oh my into. God. I can't imagine mm-hmm. an active crime scene. Yeah. The scene, which was a first floor apartment, opened up to a landing. Stepping foot through the door, Nancy looked up the staircase to the second floor apartment and stated the murderer lives upstairs. One of the officers told Nancy that a 19-year-old lived there, but Nancy was adamant that it wasn't him. It was another adult male who also lived in the apartment that committed the crime. Nancy said that she knew the murderer lived there because there was an intense energy radiating from upstairs. When stepping into Elizabeth's living room, Nancy then saw an image of a 5'10 male with reddish-brown hair and a scar on his right cheek. And that's a pretty distinctive... Oh my god, for sure. like, detail, you yeah. know? He also had a rusted western belt buckle. Also... <laughs> quite descriptive. (laughs) Yeah. Instead of telling the police what she had seen, she decided to walk into the bedroom where Elizabeth was murdered. Nancy saw the crime play out in complete detail once entering the room, and the police were able to confirm exactly what Nancy had just seen in her mind's eye. That's the only thing that would be... I I mean, that has to be traumatic. Oh, yeah. Even for the people who, like... Well, of course, for the people who, like, really go to the crime scenes and sure. take photos before anything's removed. Mm-hmm. Ooh. That's got to stay with you. You have to be very good at mm-hmm. compartmentalizing. Mm-hmm. Back at the police station, Nancy sat down with officers and told them that the murderer lived upstairs from Elizabeth. She explained what he looked like. And she gave the police details on how the crime had been committed. She said that Elizabeth had unfortunately been bludgeoned to death around 3 a.m., though police were adamant that the crime actually occurred at 11 p.m. Nancy told them, no, no, you're wrong. It happened at 3. And the man living upstairs, his first name is John. One syllable, last name, that begins with the letter R... Police confirmed that the man's name was in fact John Reese, and he did have reddish-brown hair and a scar on the right side of his face. However, they also told Nancy that they had already questioned John, and he passed a polygraph test. Oh, you know, the highly accurate polygraph. Right. (laughs) The coroner's report came back 10 days later, showing that Elizabeth had been murdered around 3.15 a.m. Feeling slightly vindicated, Nancy told police to question John again, this time with the more accurate time frame. Police agreed to bring back John for another round of questioning, even though they really had no evidence. Nancy told them that there would be a hammer that Elizabeth had been killed with. Oh, God. And that the hammer was now in a swamp. 
Nancy drew a map of where she saw the swamp, and police did indeed almost miraculously find a hammer with blood on it in the very <laughs> area where Nancy said that they would. That's It's, it's like she knows wild. what she's talking about or almost. something. Almost. You know? <laughs> During the second round of questions, John fully admitted on video that he was the one who killed Elizabeth. I mean, really, all I have to say is good on you, Nancy. Uh, yeah. Way to go, Nance. Yeah. Her mother was a seer. As a child, her neighbors thought that she was a witch. At age 14, she said that she had a vision of her father's death. A few weeks later, he died of pneumonia. It was only then that Dorothy Allison suddenly came to the conclusion that she was a psychic. For more than 30 years, Dorothy used her gifts to help police solve crimes and find missing children. She amassed a wall full of framed citations and honorary badges from police departments, but never accepted any money for her work except for the occasional travel expense or fee for appearing on a television show to discuss psychic mm -hmm. detective work. In her voluntary detective career, Dorothy worked on more than 5,000 cases for law enforcement agencies around the globe and was credited with helping to solve more than a dozen murders and find at least 50 missing children. Wow. Born in New Jersey, Dorothy was a petite woman who wore large Coke bottle style glasses, hardly the image of a crime-solving psychic. However, when Dorothy first volunteered her services in 1967, after a boy went missing in Nutley, New Jersey, she would prove to be right on the money. She told the Nutley police that she had dreamed of a blonde, blue-eyed boy in a green snowsuit with his shoes on the wrong feet. She had watched him drown in a river, and his body became stuck in a drain pipe. Oh, God. I know. Ah. She also told police that the numbers 8 and 120 were significant. The boy would be found around February 7th, that, and that a parking lot behind an ITT factory would be significant as well. Dorothy also told the officers that they would know the correct parking lot because there would be a window next to the lot that had gold lettering on it. A month later, on February 7th at 1.20 p.m., hmm. The missing boy, whose description had not been publicized, was found in a drain pipe, wearing a green snowsuit with his shoes on the wrong feet. Aww. Yeah. The elementary school, PS8, was close by, and so was the ITT factory, which had an office building next door that featured gold lettering on the window. So would begin Dorothy's storied career of helping law enforcement. In 1978, Dorothy's abilities would prove useful once again when she helped law enforcement find the body of a missing 14-year-old girl. On May 15th, Susan Jacobson would disappear soon after leaving home. Police wrote her off as a runaway, but Susan's parents knew that something else had happened to their daughter. They had heard of Dorothy Allison before, and so, realizing that the police wouldn't really be that helpful, they decided to give her a call. Dorothy arrived at the Jacobson's house a few days later for an in-person meeting. Dorothy said that the numbers 2526 and 405 were essential to Susan, and her parents informed her that Susan's birthday was February 5th, 1962, and that she had been born at 405 a.m. 
Dorothy then named Susan's boyfriend, Dempsey Hawkins, and said that he was the murderer. She explained that he was scared that Susan was going to break up with him, and during an argument, he had strangled her. Dorothy also saw the letters M-A-R and the number 222 and smelled the scent of oil. She told Susan's parents that her body would be found in water near two church steeples and a broken down car sitting in a marshy area. Two years later, in 1978, two boys found the body of Susan in an oil drum that had been tossed into a water hole. The number on the oil drum read 222, mm-hmm. and a rock across from the water hole had the letters M-A-R written across it. A hundred yards away were the two church steeples and a broken down car sitting in a marshy area, exactly like Dorothy had seen two years earlier. What sets Dorothy Allison apart from other psychic detectives is the fact that she also helped in high-profile crime cases. In 1974, San Francisco's publisher Randolph Hearst invited Dorothy to help find his kidnapped daughter, Patricia, which, as a total side note, do you remember the sassy gay friend YouTube videos? I don't think so. Oh my god. And there was one, I can quote this from memory, but he did Romeo and Juliet, and there's just one point where he's talking to Juliet, and he goes... Save it, Patty Hearst. I'm not buying any Stockholm Syndrome today. Thank you. <laughs> and that is all I can think of at this very moment. <laughs> anyway, Patricia, as she said she prefers the name over Patty, she had become well-known in the news. She had been abducted by the Symbionese Liberation Army. Jeez which was a small militant group that operated in America between 1973 and 1975. Dorothy didn't find the exact location of Patricia, but she later called the FBI twice to say that she felt Patricia was hiding in Pennsylvania and then in New York City. She also predicted that Patricia would join her captors in robbing a bank, all of which would prove accurate. Hmm. Patricia was found 19 months after she had been abducted and was convicted of bank robbery with the Symbionese Liberation Army in 1976. And remember the son of Sam? Dorothy helped with that case too. She described to police in almost exact detail what the killer looked like, saying that he was between 5'7 and 5'8 with curly brown hair and blue eyes. She also let the officers know that the son of Sam would be caught with a traffic ticket. On August 10th, 1977, the 5'8", blue-eyed, curly-haired David Berkowitz would be arrested for the Son of Sam murders. Police helped capture him because of a parking ticket that Berkowitz had been issued a few days before. Interestingly, Dorothy's last psychic premonition would be about herself. Two months before she passed away, she told her family that she wouldn't make it to 75. She died at the age of 74, four weeks before her birthday. Oh my god, that's just... I know. That's so intense. Oof. <laughs> the closer that date gets, you're like, oh god, is yep. it going to be today? I know. I mean, really, you could say that any day. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but also, I've never had a premonition of me dying at any age Jeez, i do remember a girl in high school was super 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 adamant about the fact that she was gonna die at 19 and that's why she refused to get a driver's license she's very much alive and she's 30 years old well (laughs) skeptics there you go (laughs) 
<laughs> that one's for you. Yeah. <laughs> so by now, we obviously know that law enforcement occasionally uses psychics to help with investigations. What happens though, when a psychic is asked to take the witness stand in a trial that she helps to solve, Rosemarie Kerr knows that all too well, she remains the only psychic detective in America to have ever been called as a witness during a trial. That's gotta be like some pressure. I can't imagine. Scrutiny. <laughs> yeah. You know? In 1987, 27-year-old Andre Daigle was working as a carpenter in New Orleans, Louisiana. He was described as outgoing and energetic with a good group of friends. On June 9th, Andre finished work and drove his pickup truck to go get dinner at Chi Chi's Mexican restaurant, where he would meet up with his friend Nick Shelley. After, the two headed to a place called Mitchell's Lounge to shoot some pool, and it was here that Andre would meet a woman sitting at a bar named Thelma. She was allegedly very friendly and flirtatious towards Andre, and when Nick and Andre decided to leave, Thelma asked Andre if he could give her a ride home. He agreed, and helping Thelma into his truck, bid his friend goodnight. Nick had no idea as he watched the two drive off that that would be the last time he saw Andre alive. The next day, Andre failed to show up for work, and when the evening came with still no sign of him, his friends and family became worried. Police were notified, and at first, they merely thought that he had gone off somewhere drunk and that he would be back soon. However, problem was that no one had seen him, no one knew who the mysterious Thelma was, or whether that was even her real name, and there were no clues as to where he could have possibly gone. Flyers were distributed and a search was carried out, but these turned up nothing. At this point, police didn't consider the case to be foul play, thinking he had just run off, but his family didn't agree. In the meantime, Andre's sister, Elise Daigle McGinley, who had lived across the country in California, decided to try a more unconventional method. Just two days before her brother's disappearance, Elise had gotten a psychic reading done by Rosemary Kerr of Escondido, California, and she remembered that Rosemary had promoted herself as a psychic investigator. She approached Rosemary again and asked her if she would help locate her missing brother. Rosemary accepted, making an appointment to see Elise and instructing her to bring with her a photo of her missing brother and a map of Louisiana. Upon arriving, Rosemary asked for the picture and, without even looking at it, put it on the table, closed her eyes, and began rubbing it. So, psychometry, like feeling the yep. energy from that. Later on, on the witness stand, Rosemary would testify, saying, I was moving across the picture for vibrations. I could picture Andre in a black truck that had a distinctive scratch mark on the side. He was sitting beside a man with long blonde hair who I thought possessed some sort of power over Andre. I saw water, a long bridge with railroad tracks, a sandy beach, and the number 11. A voice in my head was saying, God, my head is killing me. She also closed her eyes and moved a finger on the map of the state. 
She told jurors, I felt a tingling and I stopped. Looking down, I saw that my finger was near Slidell, about 30 miles away from New Orleans. I told Elise that she should get someone to that area as quickly as possible to investigate. The family headed for Slidell immediately and amazingly as they were driving along just before the five-mile bridge to Slidell, Andre's black truck with the distinctive side scratch passed them going the other way. They turned around and began tailing it, and inside were two men. The people in the truck seemed to know that they were being followed, and they almost immediately took off, driving down the road at about 100 miles an hour. Police finally caught them, and the two men were identified as Michael Phillips and Charles Gervais, both small-time crooks who had done time for burglary. It was thought, at first, that this was a simple open-and-shut car theft, and the men were booked. However, Andre's family were aware that something almost miraculous had just happened, and that there was more to it than just a simple car theft. The family told the police that they hired psychic Rosemary Kerr to help with the case, and that she had seen a long bridge and Andre's black truck with the scratch, as well as the town of Slidell, only days before the car chase had occurred. After Phillips and Gervais were booked, police would question them about the crime. As it would turn out, they both said that they decided to kill someone just to see if they could do it. God, that's just horrific. Uh They also wanted to know if they could steal a car and enough money to buy some guns. Oh my god. Mm They had then sent Thelma, who turned out to be Thelma Horn, Philip's girlfriend, to lure someone back to their place in order to be murdered. They took turns hitting Andre over the head with a hammer and strangled him. Oh my god. Andre was unfortunately chosen at random, being in the wrong place at the wrong time. His body was later found near a little strip of sandy beach in the Manchac Swamp, just off the highway's exit 7, all details that Rosemarie had foreseen. She had been so accurate, in fact, that she was summoned to the subsequent trial as a witness, the first time a psychic had ever given testimony on a case that they helped to solve. Even the police vouched for the accuracy of Rosemarie's visions. Phillips and Gervais would plead guilty to murder, and they were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, as they should. Mm -hmm. As for Rosemarie, she would go on to become quite the celebrity, appearing on TV shows such as Psychic Witness and Psychic Detective, as well as talk shows about her experience. She also helped out in other murder cases, though she specifically kept in touch with the Daigle family right up until her death in 2015. One example of a psychic medium who helped solve a cold case investigation is Nancy Meyer. It must be in the name, Nancy. Uh, Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) In the 1980s, a young woman named Amy. Different Amy. Nancy and Amy. Yep. Different, different Amy was found murdered in her apartment in Illinois. The case went cold for several years and no suspects were identified. In 1994, Nancy Meyer was contacted by the victim's sister to see if she could provide any information about the case. 
Nancy was a well-known psychic medium at the time, and she agreed to help with the investigation. She visited the crime scene and conducted a psychic reading, during which she claimed to have received messages from Amy's spirit. Nancy provided several details about the case that had not been released to the public, including the location of a key piece of evidence that had been overlooked by investigators. Based on Nancy's information, the police were able to identify a suspect and gather enough evidence to charge him with murder. The suspect was eventually convicted and sentenced to life in prison. I like that it's like the same flow yeah, as the other stories, you yeah. know? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Nancy Meyer's involvement in the case was controversial, and many people were skeptical of her abilities. However, the fact that she provided information that had not been released to the public and helped solve a long cold case has made her a well-known figure in the world of psychic investigation. I really love that. Like, what a cool thing to do. I know. You know, to say, oh, I took on this job and I really helped somebody with my otherworldly abilities. Right. Yeah. And while we're on the subject of jobs, Kels is a librarian, if you don't know that. Let's do some bibliomancy. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Changing uh, pace here a little, you know. But uh, why don't you flip for the first one? Sure. It is a book called Oracle of Heart Wisdom 333, readings with Alana Fairchild. And I saw 333 today on the clock, so mm-hmm. it was meant to be. Mm-hmm. Pick a number, one through three, and we are going to flip through this book. So if you picked number one, this reading is for you. 67, The Return. If you or a beloved have suffered from any kind of anguish... Wow! I know. Anything that has drained your spiritual strength and diminished your capacity to feel inherent joy, this oracle brings you glad tidings. Your ability to experience lightness of heart shall return. Take some precious time to reconnect with your heart and to your inner nature, the unlimited true self within that is not bound by personality or external conditions. It is there within you, always. Breathe in and experience this reconnection to your true nature and know the comfort of peace. In whatever way you have veered off course, a return to your true path and a continuation of your journey from an inner place of strength is predicted. Nice. Yeah. All right. Let's do group number two. Thirty-one. Call to becoming. Divine discontent has a legitimate place, even within an otherwise grateful and happy heart. It is the inner urging towards one's own growth that leads us directly into the unfamiliar and perhaps uncomfortable experiences that are pathways to embodying more of one's being. Sometimes the mind continues to hold on to what is known, if only for the comfort of familiarity. Wow, just like ghosts. Yeah. Crazy. (laughs) Long after the heart feels stifled and yearns for more aliveness. 
Whoa. Don't hold yourself back from life. Give yourself over to the inner creative genius of your unfoldment. It is your own brilliant spirit urging you on. So much more is meant for you. Oh, I like that. Mm-hmm. And for group number three. 239, the time of your life. There are times when our wishes and the need for control must give way for a larger plan to unfold in our lives. It is helpful to remember that even though life may seem to be working against you in such moments, it's not. It may be that you need to adjust your attitude or expectations from a place of trust so that you can see the blessing being offered to you. The guiding hand of fate may close a door in your face, yet the right doors will open at the right time. If there is pain now, trust that there is so you avoid greater suffering later. You may sense instability or the things are going to change and you'd be right. The more you trust in the process, the more you'll recognize that the universe is working with you. If you allow it, it will show you the time of your life. Then I hold it all to you. <laughs> and tell everyone where they can find us online. Sure. Besides the pod. Of course. If you're listening. <laughs> we can be found on Instagram at the Castaways Pod, all one word, and on TikTok at the underscore castaways underscore pod. You can also send us an email just to say hello or send in one of your ghost stories to become part of our apparition coalition. Very official. (laughs) Official business Mm -hmm. only at thecastaways.pod at gmail.com. As always, thanks for hanging out with us this week. We've been your hosts, Kelsey. And I'm Sarah. And And we're we're the Castaways. Nancy Weber has had psychic abilities for as long as she can remember, though she never used the term psychic to describe herself until she became an RN at a psychiatric... A psychiatric hospital? Psychiatric hospital. (laughs) We have Myra. (laughs) David. Mm. Fold it in. I don't know how to fold broken Broken cheese cheese like this. (laughs) This is your recipe. After several worried hours, Hoffman's mother went to the mall where she would find... (laughs) Where she would find... However, they also told Nance... They told Nance. They they told her Nance. (laughs) With our western belt buckle. (laughs) It's a little rusty. In 1974, San Francisco's publishing magnet... Is it magnet or magnate? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't either. Okay. <clears throat> Publishing house? Publisher. Publisher. Publi- yeah, there we go. 
1974, San Francisco's publisher Randolph Hearst invited Dorothy to help find his kidnapped daughter, Patricia. 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 Oh my god. <laughs> okay. Patricia. <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> Oh, shit. You know, Patricia Hurst. And this is cold food. Okay. His body was later found near a little strip of sandy beach in the Manchac Swamp. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of my favorite bloopers ever. Swamp. So wamp. Swamp. Swamp. <laughs> oh, man. The time of your life. There are times when our wishes Love. and the need for control. <laughs> Oh, it all to you. I'm a hundred 